France. Christmas food. Christmas food in France, even better. It's a match made in heaven. But how did some of the most famous French holiday traditions become so traditional? Join us as we explore the tasty history of Christmas foods in France. Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. Every country and culture has its midwinter traditions. And of course, with those traditions comes lots of food. The need to get our food on during the darkest period of the year is universal. Even my cat seems hungrier right now. France being France, food is naturally a big focus of the holiday season. And France being France, a lot of those traditions are steeped in history. Medieval Catholic piety meets New World delicacies and is topped off by 19th century culinary innovation in this look at the French Christmas feast. To cover the full, gut-busting holiday menu would result in a Christmas mass-length podcast, so we're just going to stick with the light menu, starting with oysters, carving up the turkey with chestnuts, and finishing off with a classic bouche de Noël cake. Let's set the scene. It's Christmas Eve. You may or probably may not have gone to midnight mass, and it's time to revel. You will gather with your family and close friends and party at home. This follows the continental European tradition of focusing more on Christmas Eve than Christmas Day like we do here in the United States. But whether you start before midnight, especially if you have little ones, or you opt for a very late start, remember to come hungry because we're going to be eating a lot of food. Let's get started. One of the most popular appetizers or entrees in French are oysters. Other seafood is also quite common and dependent upon the host's budgets and tastes in the region that they live in. While in the U.S. we tend to reserve oyster eating for restaurants usually, the French have no qualms cracking open their huitre at home. Served with bread and garnished with lemon or an aioli on the side, or perhaps with a wine and shallot sauce, you can expect to run into these mollusks at most Réveillon de Noël or Christmas Eve parties. But how did oysters and other seafood end up on the menu in the first place? Well, we have to go back all the way to medieval Catholic tradition of fasting before Christmas. The period of Advent historically was a period of fasting leading up to the massive amounts of feasting during the 12 days of Christmas. It was similar to Lent, but shorter and I don't less strict, less severe than the Lenten season. In addition to being an act of religious devotion and piety, much more practically, it was also a way to save up your foodstuffs and preparation for the partying and save up your money as well. And a lot of the food items actually required a lot of prep. The traditional Christmas pudding, to use an Anglo food reference, would be made a week or more in advance of when you were going to eat it. So a lot going on in Advent, uh, and you needed all of your resources to be ready. And the rules of Catholic fasting varied across time and place, but one common rule was a restriction against eating land animals. So fish and seafood were prominently featured on the menu during Advent. And as hard as it is to believe now, historically, oysters were very cheap. 
They were inexpensive food to be eaten at home or and also considered street food in coastal cities. So forget about your crepes, forget about your baguette sandwiches, get your fresh oysters. So a combination of requisite piety and frugality led to a long tradition of oysters at Christmas. But as with most things, the perceived value of oysters altered over time, especially in the 19th century. As demand increased and outstripped supply, they became part of a luxurious Christmas indulgence instead of food for the masses. But if you're like me and you don't care for the fruits de mer, never fear. You can also expect to see foie gras, which is also a little problematic for people, and other traditional small bites, things that we would recognize, like canapes, cheese puffs, charcuterie, and the like. But unlike my brother and I this Thanksgiving, do not go overboard on this because we still have the main meal and the dessert to go. And for that plat principal, or the main dish, today we're serving up turkey with chestnuts, or dondo marron. Turkey's Christmas story is the opposite of the oyster. It started as an exotic luxury good, and then became food for the masses. And yes, we're going to go there. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered, from the European perspective, not the eastern side of India like he thought, but the rich and diverse Americas. And he promptly set up some pretty horrific precedents in regards to treatment of the native peoples and the native resources. But he also started a centuries-long food exchange between the old world and the new. One of his discoveries in the new world was the humble turkey. And he, or perhaps another early explorer, brought back this new giant chicken, and it was an instant hit. In French, it was called the Poule d'Inde, or the Hen of India, which eventually was just shortened to d'Inde. Something this exotic, this rare, which was only available by import through Spain, graced, of course, only the highest of tables. It seems to have made it up to France from Spain in the mid-1500s. Supposedly, Queen Catherine de' Medici served a great number of turkeys at a banquet held for the Bishop of Paris, but it isn't very well sourced. Slightly more well-documented is that King Charles IX, the son of Catherine, and Elizabeth of Austria served turkey at their wedding feast in 1570, so pretty early for the turkey there. But the turkey's luxury heyday was not to last. By the 17th century, they were being raised in France, and their value as a rare and exotic import was reduced to a humdrum, homegrown poultry. But it is here where we begin to see it transform into a traditional meal. Tracing back through the cookbooks, in the 1650s, the famous French chef La Varenne released cookbooks in both French and English, he used to work in England, which included recipes for turkey. In addition to a rather uninformative recipe for roast turkey, basically cook it, eat it, there is also one for a potage with turkey farced, and yeah, that's in the English version. From what I could find, a potage at this time could kind of be anything from a thick soup to a dish cooked in a pot with broth that wasn't quite a soup, think almost more of a gravy, but it was served over toasted bread to soak up all of those juices. Farced here does not mean a funny turkey spoof, but rather the inclusion of meat and breadcrumbs that could be 
used as a stuffing, farce is still the verb and noun for stuffing in French, or formed into sort of dumplings and cooked in the broth, or even just used as a thickener because the the meat was chopped up quite fine along with the bread or breadcrumbs. I feel like this was probably up to you as the chef and your interpretation. I'll be leaving one of the recipes on the website, parisgoneby.com. The link will be in the description. What is interesting about this potage, though, is that we already see chestnut as an ingredient here. The pairing had officially begun. Thankfully, by the 18th century, we're starting to see something a little more familiar than a potage. A turkey, roasted on a spit, served with chestnuts. But at least in the cookbook I found, the recipe was far from having top billing and was buried way down on the turkey list. But that turkey list was huge. It's a testament to turkey's popularity by this point. It was a very common food in France. There were also, kind of for me, an alarming number of turkey recipes involving crayfish, which I'm also not a fan, but also a large number that included bacon and other cuts of pork, of which, of course, I am a huge fan. My takeaway from this is that it seems that French chefs also struggled with that eternal fight between moist, tender turkey and Christmas vacation levels of dryness. By the time Alexander Dumas, yeah, that Dumas, wrote his seminal work, The Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine, or The Grand Dictionary or Great Dictionary of Cuisine, in 1873, we have a turkey stuffed with chestnut stuffing with chestnuts on the side. This recipe was also pretty buried down the turkey list, so perhaps it was common but not a showstopper. Or maybe it was so common it was relegated to lower on the list. The recipes in the book do somewhat seem to go in descending order from the fanciest on down. One of the repeating themes of the turkey research was that turkey's popularity was based on its sheer size. Cheaper than goose, several times larger than a chicken, it handily fed a number of people at an affordable price. But I think... Here, at the end of the the 19th century, and especially as we go into the 20th century, we really start seeing turkey with chestnuts solidifying as a popular Christmas choice. But why chestnuts? Well, we can blame the 19th century again. Chestnuts in the medieval period were seen as an alternative to wheat, especially during crop failures, and their flour was used in baking and cooking. But in the early 19th century, the chestnut market bottomed out. The workers moved to cities and the trees were hit with some sort of blight. So suddenly they became more rare and something of an affordable luxury in the winter months, moving from a grain substitute then to a treat sold at the markets and added to ice cream as a flavoring. And of course, being used as an ingredient in your Christmas dinner. France had been a production center of chestnuts since the medieval period as well. So voila, you have an affordable protein in turkey and an affordable luxury in chestnuts combined for Christmas. But I hope you've left room for dessert because when we think of French Christmas desserts, on top of the list is the bouche de Noël, that tasty rolled sponge cake covered in buttercream and formed into the shape of a Yule log. It's rich, it's decadent, and it's ubiquitous in France at Christmas. It's available in all sorts of shapes and sizes now, and even with ice cream. It delights the eye and the palate. But where did the bouche come from? 
And why does it look like we grabbed something from the forest floor? Like most food traditions, it's a bit hard to pin this one down, though everyone agrees that this gorgeous and decadent dessert was a 19th century creation. But was it early 19th, late 19th? The sources tended to disagree. One thing that they do all agree on is that it's based on the actual Yule log of yore. We must travel back in time again, this time all the way back to the pre-Christian pagans. At the winter solstice, it was custom to burn a giant log or even sometimes possibly a whole tree trunk. And they used this to celebrate midwinter, to keep the evil spirits away and to welcome the coming of spring. This tradition was rather stubborn and continued into the Christian era and throughout it, though the logs were eventually brought inside and burned in those gigantic fireplaces that you see in the early modern period. Over the years, that huge, trying to keep us warm in the winter with a giant fire-sized fireplace that could accommodate those traditional Yule logs went out of fashion. They were replaced with smaller, more efficient coal and wood stoves, and then later, of course, the gas and electric heating that we enjoy today. And with urban development, everyone was living in spaces that were incompatible with carrying a big log up to your petite appartement. The history up to this point, I feel, is fairly straightforward, you know, bringing the log inside and then basically it was sized out. But tracking down the original Bouchdreno well, where it converts from a log in a fireplace to a cake on the table, was not as easy. It seems that to keep the log tradition alive, sometime in the 19th century, the Bouchdreno well cake was developed. And here we have to dive into all the contradictory sources, and some of them are quite interesting. One source that ended up being a fun trip down the rabbit hole had the first Yule log-like cake, or perhaps more accurately, more of a Swiss roll-style cake, going back all the way to England in 1615 in a housewifery guide called The English Huswife by a Gervais Markham. And if you're thinking that was a really long time ago in the wrong country, you would be correct. Gervais ended up being an interesting person. He wrote two books on housewifery with similar titles. Only one of them had come out in 1615. He was also, in general, just a prolific writer. He wrote about everything from horsemanship to archery to the proper comport of women, plus also poetry and plays. You know, anything for money. I feel it, dude. I feel it. However, looking back through a 1623 printed version of that 1615 book, I couldn't find a copy, unfortunately, of the 1615. There was nothing that approximated a frosted Swiss roll cake. However, there were some options that, if we're being generous, could be called a proto-sponge cake, but they were heavily spiced and not rolled in any way. So I think we can safely say that the Modern French Bouche de Noël cake does not go back to 17th century England. However, there was a recipe for pain perdu, or what we now call French toast, and one dessert that was called Sucket, S-U-C-K-E-T. It may be pronounced Souquet, however, I love the idea of the man of the house asking, Honey, what's for dessert? And the wife of the cook answering, Sucket. I think we've all been there. All of the other sources do really stay focused on the 19th century, but they run the gamut from one mentioning Napoleon, or rather a chef associated with him, an anonymous Parisian chef in the 1830s, 
another in Lyon in the 1860s, and later a chocolatier at the end of the century. But the real contenders are some of the most famous pastry chefs of the Belle Epoque. Pierre Lacombe, the personal pastry chef of Prince Charles III, or Charles III of Monaco, who was also a celebrity pastry chef, is up against the Parisian pastry chef Antoine Chardot, who had a patisserie on the Rue de Boussy in Paris, that beautiful ancient street that we all love. Most sources, and I'm using that term loosely, mention them separately as contenders, and perhaps they are. Lacombe printed a version of his recipe book, The Memorial de, de la Patisserie, or kind of a reflection of pastry. But the book was a compilation of collected recipes, not just his own original recipes. And a lot of people said that it came out in the 1860s. However, I couldn't find anything before 1890 for him and pastry. But most intriguingly, Lacombe and the other contender, Chardot, co-authored a book in 1893, or in English, the classic and artistic ice cream parlor in France and Italy. And in this book, they discuss both pastry and ice cream treats. And emphatically in the book, the Bouche de Noël is credited to Chardot, who supposedly invented it in 1879 at his patisserie on the Rue de Boussy. Considering the era and considering the fact that Chardot is one of the authors, we have to take this with a gigantic grain of salt. During the Victorian and Belle Epoque period, intellectual property rights were not exactly the same as they are now, and people were happy to take credit for whatever they wanted. So things haven't changed, really. But I think that whoever the inventor was of the cake, it seems that the authors did assume that their claim was somewhat credible, that the cake was relatively new, perhaps only 14 years old at this point, and that the readers would recognize this fact and find their claim believable. So I think we can safely assume that the Bouche de Noël, as we know it, is a Belle Epoque and probably Parisian invention. So next time you're on the, the Rue de Boussy, taking in all of that medieval glory, think about the Bouche de Noël as well. Phew, guys, we made it from suck it to the Belle Epoque in short order. I think we deserve some cake. There we have it. Three major parts of a traditional French Christmas meal. Which was your favorite? For me, of course, it's the Bouche de Noël, never say no to chocolate. If you want to go deeper into this episode, check out some of these historic recipes, read the blog, and explore more resources, do head on over to the website at parisconby.com. And if you love what you heard, please subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. And if you really loved what you heard, check out the other opportunities to support Paris Gone By. Merci beaucoup, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Joyeux Noël, and have a great rest of your day. I'll be on tour.